good morning, everybody. Well, we're in Job today, as I warned you. I don't know if it's a good thing or a bad thing to only take one week in Job, but um, that's what we're going to do. You can turn to Job if you want in your Bibles. We uh, finished the first five books of the Old Testament, and and, and in, in our flyover, and these are, of course, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch. We've said that many times. Remember, we also mentioned that these first five books stand as the Torah or the Hebrew Scriptures. Very important for the Hebrews even today, those first five books. There's a lot of history there, isn't there? A lot of amazing Sunday school stories that we, we, come, that we pull forth from that Pentateuch. Um, and we've kind of funneled down the story, if you think about it, from, from creation. We've funneled down to the nation of Israel as they're ready to enter the land promised to their predecessor, Abraham. That land of Canaan, it's, it's a hostile land, but God will go before them. That's the plan. It will become the land of Israel. But before we cross the Jordan River with Joshua... The nation to conquer and inhabit the land will do that soon, but I want to leave them stranded right there, kind of frozen in time for a minute, for a few weeks really, and um, we're going to jump back. What we're doing is jumping back to a standalone story, and actually the reason we're jumping back is because it chronologically precedes where we've been, and that's the story of Job, of course. Now, if you have um, read or studied Job at all leading up to this, you know that we really don't know all that much about Job. We have a segment, and we don't know a whole lot about that or beyond that. We don't know much about who wrote the book. There's not a lot in tradition or in the book itself that tells us about who wrote it. So speculation takes, takes place. You can find that. Was it this or was it that time or this time? And the timing is another issue. Um, Job may have been recorded years and years after the, the events took place, which is pretty likely. But the events probably took place concurrent with some of the times of Genesis. So we're backing up in, in that chronological sense. And I already gave you the date a while back, but it's, it's probably the 2100 B.C. or so. Um, and you can put that on your timeline. Hopefully you still have that somewhere. That's our best option, that Job probably lived during the time of the patriarchs. So Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, somewhere back in that, re- in that realm. And again, that's why we're here today, to remain sort of chronological as we fly over the Old Testament. Job lived in a land called Uz. We learned that from the first verses of the book. Probably that's in the region of Arabia, which would be south, perhaps east of Israel. Now at least very desertish. Um, if you remember when we started our flyover in January... We notice that Job could be classified as a book of poetry and wisdom. There's five of those. And Job, Job includes some narrative, namely the, the, the prologue at the beginning and then the epilogue at the end, very end. That would be the story portion. However, the majority of the book is 
poetry, Job's musings, and and his friends, and um, it's it, it's a little different, of course, than that genre of, of psalms or proverbs. But it, it would be considered um, poetry. Now, some of you, as you think about the book of Job, you would probably say that the purpose of the book is despair and depression. I mean, really, why do we need this lengthy tale of trial? Well, I I hope we can see a little bit further than this as we think about the purpose of Job. Now, of course, we're flying over fast. We're missing a lot of things. That's the downside to this speedy take. But um, there's a lot of pieces and parts to what Job says and what his friends say and what's going on here that are would be good to look at in detail at some point. But it's good to ask the question, what is the purpose? What, what is behind the writing of the book? Why should we have it? Why do we have it? Why is it part of God's revealed word to us? It's a pretty good chunk of it. What was included and what was left out? Those things, what was left out, what was included, give us clues to the reasons that we have the book at all so watch for it what do you think well let's fly over this book let's just ask the lord to um, help us guide us into truth as we look at his his word thank you god for the book of job Um, i feel almost almost guilty missing so much of it but I pray that our familiarity would give us a desire to further look into the truths of Job and study it and understand more of the purpose that we have it for and and how it can change and help us in our lives, change our lives, encourage us. I pray that we just catch a glimpse of that even today as we look at it a little bit. Thank you that it can be a part of, of what you're doing here. I pray that you would you would soften our hearts too as we come to communion here in a few minutes and as we come to remember your suffering, your suffering for us, your trial, deep trial that you went through that we could have life. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't turned there, look at the, go ahead and turn to the book of Job. Look at the first few, the first two, sorry, chapters. Um, and actually, right before we get there, I, I just, I think we should, we could, we could, if, if you want, we could split Job into three basic sections. You can see them there. I've given those names. Those, those are arbitrary. You can put whatever you want between the quotes. But um, chapters one and two, extraordinary trial and spiritual reality. And then the second one being the bulk of the book, three through 37, contemplations and questions and then the last four chapters, resolution and victory. That might help us just get a better grasp as a whole. So look at the first two chapters, the story portion here that sets the stage going forward. We find a man named Job, of course. You can call him Job if you want. That's okay. In the, in the first sentence, we learn that this man was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. That's a pretty great description. You know, that's something to aspire to. Throughout Scripture, you you notice that there are comparisons between the wicked and the righteous, the wise and the fool, the diligent and the lazy, and I think Job lands on the positive side of those things, those comparisons. Job was also wealthy. 
Not only did he have 10 children, but he had large amounts of flocks and herds and servants and land. It is even said in in reference to his wealth in verse 3 there that he was the greatest of all the men in the east. Well, in verse 6, the the scene makes a dramatic switch. And really, I think this is a rare glimpse of the spiritual realm, a rare glimpse in Scripture. It It is said that Satan came with the angels presenting themselves before the Lord. Now, I'm not sure exactly what all this means and how all that looks and what's going on there. Maybe you can help me out later. But God, in this context, God, Yahweh, brings up Job to Satan. He says, have you considered, that is, have you studied my man Job? Satan answers, well, why wouldn't he follow you? Why wouldn't he fear you when you've given him all these blessings? He has protection He has increasing wealth. Satan says to God, I bet if you took it all away, Job would curse you to your face. Well, so then you see in the the story here, God gave Satan permission to take it all away. To ruin Job's life, as we might say. You, You can look at the particulars of how this all happened. Terrible destruction, loss of wealth, loss of life. And eventually Satan inflicted Job himself with terrible physical maladies he lost it all he's suffering deeply keep in mind job really has no idea he doesn't have the backstory that we have at this point he doesn't know why it just all happened as far as we know that window was not open to him so you have truly the man going from riches to rags the only thing left that he has is his wife to comfort him. Oh, wait. (laughs) Yeah, you know the story. Verse 9. What is wrong with you, Job? Do you still hold fast to your integrity? Curse God and die, you fool. Well, that's got to be helpful. Anyhow, um, this whole scene, this whole scene has got to be, it's a little hard for us, isn't it? Why would a righteous person like this suffer so much? I mean, this is suffering like probably none of us have ever or will ever know. Later in the Bible, Job is mentioned as an example of struggling through trial and succeeding. By the way, if you ever hear of a Christian, you ever hear a Christian teacher say that the righteous should not suffer, that if you have enough faith, you will have no sickness and death. You will always be wealthy. According to Job, that would be inaccurate. Don't listen to those false teachers. When C.S. Lewis was asked why the righteous suffer, he said, why not? They're the only ones who can take it. You can do with that what you will. But incidentally, in this story, we do learn a little bit about Satan, just to throw that in there. Satan is accountable to God. He's got some kind of leash on. I kind of wish it was a little shorter. Additionally, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not everywhere at once. He only occupies one place at one time, nor is he omniscient. He doesn't know it all. He cannot know it all. Well, more to the purpose of this book of Job. Job responds. He reacts to all of this with a magnificent response. At least I think it is in in chapter 1, verse 20. Look at what it says there. 
Job arose, he tore his robe, he shaved his head, he fell to the ground. I mean, the man was affected, right? It was terrible. He was grieved. But then what? He worshipped. He worshipped. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Amazing. Chapter 10, verse 2, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 10. Still in the story portion, first segment here. After his wife urges him to give up on God, to curse God, Job says, shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. A magnificent response in the face of terrible suffering. Okay, so that brings us to the second segment of the book, starting in chapter 3 and going through 37. It's really a long, dramatic poem. I've called it Contemplations and Questions. Someone has said that the book has a disproportionate amount of questions. They, they counted 330 questions in the book. Some of those are rhetorical. The answers are obvious. Others are just thought-provoking. There may not be an obvious answer to some of these questions of why. Job has three friends that now come to mourn with him, to grieve with him. Job is, I guess, the subject of sympathy, whether he likes it or not. It is said that they, they mourn with him seven days without speaking a word. That was probably a good move. In fact, maybe they should have left before the second segment of before chapter 3 where they open their mouths to give counsel. So from chapters 3 through 37, there are three cycles of speeches. If you pay attention to that, the Job responds after each one of these three guys speaks. And then after a while, there's a fourth friend who chimes in. Keep in mind, Job and his so-called buddies here, as they speak, these men didn't have the recorded word of God in any way that we know of. The law of Moses was not there. They didn't have the prophets. And yet there's a familiarity with God. Not all of it's correct, especially in the case of the three friends. But Job has some amazing insights, some real knowledge of who God is. So Job laments in chapter 3. And then Eliphaz, the first of the friends, speaks in chapter 4. He tells Job that he is suffering... This has all happened because you're a sinner, Job, and God is punishing you. Job responds then, and then Bildad, um, he, he, he's the shoe height. He's one of those really short guys. Um, anyway, he chimes in in chapter 8, and he claims that Job's children died because they were sinners. Well, that's helpful. Thank you. Job responds, and then Zophar comes in. The third man, he rebukes Job in chapter 11, telling him to repent of his sin. God wouldn't treat you this way if you weren't in the wrong, Job. Job responds, he speaks again in 12 and 13 and 14. And Job remains confident through all of this that his suffering is not due to his sin. Let's dip the plane down a little bit closer. Look at verse 15 of chapter 13, 13, 15. And we're just, just grabbing little pieces and, and more of these show up that we aren't talking about this morning. But in, in verse 15, though he kills me, he's talking about God. Job says, though he kills me, I will trust in him. A 
amazing statement. And, and then in verse 16, right there following, Job claims godliness and he says, this will be my salvation. He's not willing to say that he is in sin. I think we could maybe say this is the essence of Job's attitude, his response in faith to real affliction. He's, he's feeling it. Have you ever felt real affliction? Maybe not like this, but you have. You felt trial. Nevertheless, I will trust him. Nevertheless, I will trust him. My hope will remain in God. He will save me. Mother Teresa has said, you'll never know if Jesus is all that you need until Jesus is all that you have. The second cycle of speeches then starts in chapter 15. Eliphaz speaks again, telling Job he's a fool. He's full of wind. Job responds. He speaks in 16 and 17. In this this segment, he calls these friends sorry comforters. You know, they've, they've got the formula, the law for life. But it's, to Job, it's just a gut punch. They don't really know how he feels. Some of you are pretty good comforters. Just being there, crying, hugging, sitting there, saying very little. You don't really, you haven't felt what your friend, your friend feels entirely, do you? But because you're there, you're comforting. Sometimes the best counsel, the best comfort is, is just being there. It's not trying to rectify the situation, not trying to solve everything. I'm not very good at that. Bildad chimes in again in chapter 18, and Job responds in 19. And we've got to dip down in 19. There's some crazy, some really pretty cool theology that Job touches on as we look at verse, look at verse 25 and 26 of, of chapter 19. Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives. God, who is alive, holds Job's life. He believes this, and he will save him. And then Job goes on. And then at the last, at the end, he will take his stand on the earth. You see that? That, that's, That's events. That's eschatology. That's things yet to take place. And Job, even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I will see God. Job believed in the resurrection of his physical body. And again, in the end times, after he had died and been fully resurrected, bodily resurrected, he would see God in the flesh. Amazing statement. And through it all, it's faith, isn't it? I will trust him. So now we've come to the we've we've cycled through the first and the second and the third cycle of speeches starts in chapter 22. Eliphaz starts it off again, and it continues from there. But look at um, chapter 23 where Job responds to Eliphaz. He begins <clears throat> there in the first part of the chapter. If only I knew how to find God. God, this is Job. If only I knew how to find God so that I could go to him and plead my case, so that I could explain and defend. I'm paraphrasing there, but Job is saying, I can't perceive him. Where is God? God's not always obvious, is he, in our troubles and our times. There's no doubt that there's frustration with where Job is at, at least as I'm seeing it. But look at 23, after he says these things, look at 23.10. He's venting, he's questioning He's grieving, 
but he's also trusting. In, in verse 10, but God knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. You know, I might not know where God is, but God knows where I am. I think this is Job's, theo- Job, Job's theology of God's sovereignty. Be, be good for us to, to think more about that, pay attention to that. Well, this third cycle of, of speech continues with the three counselors, Job's response after everyone. And then in 32, chapter 32, a man named Elihu shows up. I'm not sure where he came from, if he's been there the whole time or what, but he's a younger man, which is maybe why he didn't speak until this time. Elihu shows a little more wisdom, actually, it would seem here anyway. He points Job up to God. He represents God a little bit better, a little bit more properly than these other three friends have. In fact, you see Elihu express anger at the misrepresentation of God. He says suffering can indeed be instructional, not just punitive, not just for punishing. You can look at what Elihu has to say there later. But finally, after Elihu is done speaking, chapter 38, Um, This launches the third and final section of the book that I've called Resolution and Victory. God breaks the silence of heaven, if you will. God speaks and has a monologue ending all of this debate. And and you see most of that in 38 and 39. Two, Two incredible speeches given by God. We would do well to pay attention to what he has to say. You can read them in full at some point. But, you know, we've got the backdrop of Job's significant suffering from a human perspective, right? We, we understand that to a degree. That is, it seems like injustice. It seems like definitely it's unfair. At first glance, I'm not sure we're quite satisfied with God's answer. But as people of faith, we want to work toward that. If, if, if we're not, we want to be. God didn't explain And we're not going to go through exactly what God said there, but he didn't explain to Job really anything about why he was suffering. He didn't give good reasons for it. He didn't even reveal to him that Satan had accused him. So from a human perspective, you might say it doesn't really make sense. What God does do, though, is teach emphatically how really insignificant Job was and how great God is. Many of those 330 questions were asked by God here of Job to remind him, to remind all of us of that vast categorical difference between us and God. And really, I think some of these questions, this, 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 this monologue of God is to remind us that it's really not about us. It's not really about me. There's a lot more to that. We're skimming over the top. But perhaps we're not to have a reasonable solution to everything. These, these counselors, the, the three friends, um, God says of them that they have darkened counsel without knowledge. And then God teaches. He says, where were you, Job? He speaks of the natural world, of creating and of sustaining it. 
And then the idea, I think, is Job, if you cannot fully imagine and comprehend the massiveness of physical creation, how are you to comprehend and to make sense of things beyond it, of spiritual realities? Now, that's a broad statement. There are things we do understand about spiritual realities, but I'm not sure we were meant to grasp most of it right now, at least. Does, it, does this all point to us living by faith, responding with trust during trial? You know, our visible, the things we know, is deeply affected by the invisible, the things we don't know, the things, the spiritual things that we can't see. Well, as you work your way on through there, Job is humbled. He humbles himself before God. You can see it in, in the first part of chapter 40. He says, I am insignificant. I lay my hand over my mouth. He's responding to God. Also in chapter 42, 1 through 6, Job repents of what I think are rash words. I, I personally don't think Job was living in pride and sin, but he spoke rashly and he repents of those things before God. So true humility starts with us seeing reality the reality of who God is and then who we are. Well, as we come in to the end of the story, as we kind of wrap it up, um, Job intercedes for his three friends. They have displeased God. God says, you need to pray for them. And finally, in the last few verses of chapter 42, that epilogue, God restores everything to Job. He restores his health. And his, for, and his fortune. Actually, he doesn't restore it. He doubles it. Everything is doubled except for his children. He has 10 more kids. Per, I'm going to guess that he retained that title of the greatest man among the people of the East. Well, as we think about the purpose of the book, the purpose of Job. Now, I, I think that I don't want to say that this is, I, I'm not going to limit that purpose, but Here's one thing that I see as I look through Job, and, and you can find others, I'm sure. I know you can. Um, if, if you're a believer, you've come to God and you've asked him to save you through the blood of Jesus Christ. And then there's lots of other steps along the way. And I think Job is here to remind us one of those, one of the big pieces of being a Christian is to respond with trust during trial as you know in life we tend to have suffering of some kind and we want to respond with trust during trial that doesn't mean we have to like these trials i don't think but we as we suffer we may grieve we struggle as we wonder as we ask questions we want to respond with a deep trust during trial. So teach yourself that. Commit yourself to trusting God no matter what. God wanted Job to trust him and to bow before him regardless of his understanding or in his case his lack of understanding in the matter that he was facing. I think Job probably, if you were to give him a grade, you could give him an A. He passed the test, if that was part of it. He lets us know that God should be worshipped apart from his gifts to us. 
God should be worshipped apart from his gifts. Sometimes God calms the storm around you. That's what we pray for so much of the time, isn't it? We like that. Just calm things down, take care of these issues. And that's good. Sometimes God does that. Sometimes God may calm you in the storm. The storm is still there as you trust him and as you worship during trial. I just a couple of points as we think about this, responding with trust during trial. Um, I want, uh, or we can remember the, these things as we respond with trust during trial. One, we don't see the whole picture. We, we mentioned that. Do you think if you asked Job at the end of all of this, could he give you a full logical explanation of what happened and why it happened? I'm not sure that he could have. Some of this is beyond our understanding. Remember that spiritual, that invisible affects everything we know as reality, as visible. Now, we don't tend to stress out too much about the suffering of the wicked. They, they got it coming, whatever we think. But why does God allow the suffering of the righteous? That's part of this question. Well, that's a very involved subject, and um, there's, there's books you can read, there's, there's discussion that should take place, but I'm, I'm not sure that there is a real clear intellectual answer that we would like, we, would, we want. Why does God allow a good person to suffer? I think in a practical answer, to that question, Job leads by example. He didn't demand answers. He didn't threaten or bargain with God to get his way. He didn't fall into deep depression. But of course, he did ask questions. He wondered. He agonized. But as far as I can see through this story, he responded with trust during trial. We don't see the whole picture, but we make a choice to respond with trust to God during trial. It's a difficult subject. It really is. So we continue to think and to learn on it. A while back, I, as, as an illustration of this, a while back I read a book about bear habits. Really wasn't intending it to be an illustration at the time. But, uh, you know, bears are interesting creatures. One of the points of interest, if you think about bears, is their strength. They're extremely strong. It's been said that no animal of equal size is as powerful as a bear. A, a bear may kill a moose, may kill an elk or a deer by a single blow to the neck with a powerful foreleg, and then lift the carcass in its mouth and carry it for great distances. A bear might put its claw under a slab of rock that three grown men could not lift and flip it over effortlessly in looking for food. A brown bear, which is the same as a grizzly bear, was observed taking a thousand-pound steer a half mile up an almost vertical mountain much of the way through alder tree tangles. Strength and power, they're not only attributes of large bears or adult bears, but of the young bears. 
One person observed a yearling American black bear searching for insects turn over a flat-shaped rock that was between 310 and 325 pounds. The bear was captured the following day in a management action and was found to weigh only 120 pounds. Another bear biologist once watched a large grizzly running effortlessly down a steep mountain slope carrying a 300-pound sheep in its mouth. But these bears can be captured. Though they're powerful, sometimes scientists will capture them in a live trap, something like that, or or maybe tranquilize them from a helicopter um, for research. Sometimes they'll capture them and transport them out of the area for their own safety or the safety of the public. Most of this is done for the good of the bear. The individual bear that's being captured or tranquilized, it's being done for the good of the bear or even for the greater bear population for research and development for further generations of bears. It's, it's, it's done for their health, for the benefit of their health, and, and for long life, giving them long life, and, and bringing the bear populations to a healthy place, whatever it might be. But if you think about the bear's perspective for a minute, he doesn't understand why he needs to be captured. Why would they stick him with needles? Why would they paralyze him in some cases? Why would they remove him from his tasty garbage heap? I mean, the bear thinks the worst. I assume, I haven't talked to one, but they're, they're out to destroy me. But the scientist knows the full picture. Even while restraining and poking and hurting the bear, he has good motives. He has the full picture. He has a long-term plan. So, I wonder, and this wasn't my idea, I stole it from someone else, but Do we know any more than the bear in relation to the scientist when it comes to us and our great God? Can we see better than the captured bear when we go through trial? Our vision is limited. Maybe you could say, compared to God, our perspective is something like this. It seems like torture at times, doesn't it? But there's a whole lot more to the picture. A second thing we we should remember is that trial creates character. Job responds by trusting God during trial. He believes that God is not just squishing him for fun or, or simply to prove something to Satan. I don't think that's the only thing that was going on here. This test, this trial, this tribulation is refining him. It's creating character. It's the potter's hand lovingly, believe it or not, lovingly shaping us. You've heard the verse out of Romans 5. Paul there says in verse 3 and 4, but we also boast in our afflictions because we know that affliction produces endurance and endurance produces proven character and proven character hope. So affliction, trial is producing something in us. I think Job, I think he realized that. He was being further purified. Remember, I will come forth as gold. None of us have a guarantee of safety or a guarantee of a clean bill of health or of freedom. And I don't mean that to discourage you, but actually maybe to encourage you. When you face difficulty, and you will, you have, maybe you are 
It will be purifying. It will be cleansing. It will be building. And you will come out a better person as you respond in trust during your trial. Third, and you can think of more. These are the three that I, that I have, but we remember that God loves us. That's important. Have you ever put something in the oven, turned it on, set the timer, but you didn't hear the timer when, the, when it went off? 20 minutes later, you wonder what's burning and you remember, oh, I forgot there's something in the oven. Have you ever felt like you were in the oven and God didn't hear the timer? And you're crisping out in there. God won't forget you. He will always hear the timer. Philippians 4, 13, one of many verses to encourage, as you're in the oven, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul writes that in the context of, of life, of contentedness, no matter what, in all circumstances. The scripture tells us that nothing will separate us from the love of God. So, don't forget God loves you during these times. So, one of the challenges that we can get from the book of Job as we looked at it today, and then hopefully you're able to look at it in your personal time, respond with trust during trial.